you guys. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Um, for, for those of you that, that don't know me, uh, my name is Ben King, and I'm one of the pastors at Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown, which uh, God graciously and, and powerfully planted through the ministry of this church. Um, and, and, and I'm just so thankful to be here with you. We got to just sort of like hop over the, the vortex that was COVID-19 and be here with you on your first day back in the building. So uh, I'm here with my, if you don't know me, I'm here with my wife, Lindsay, and our four kids, Adley, Benjamin, Maggie, and our little one, Levi, is downstairs. Again, just so thankful to be here with you. Uh, it's been a wild 18 months. I know it's been a wild 18 months for you. It's def that is definitely not how we expected that the first 18 months of our life together as a church was going to go. Uh, but just praising God for his kindness and goodness and grace to us. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at Mark 14, uh, verses 32 to 42. Uh, Jesus prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know you guys are working your way through John's Gospel, and uh, this is actually a, a portion of Jesus' passion and suffering that uh, does not appear in John's Gospel, so I figured I would, you know, give you a little supplement. Uh, so Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. Listen as I read. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's, let me pray for us briefly. Lord, this is your word. Your word, which you say is life that revives our souls, that nourishes our hearts. And Lord, as has been prayed multiple times, even this morning, 
Would you give us again a sight of your son, Jesus Christ? That we would see again our need, our hopelessness, our weakness, apart from your grace. But that you would show us again the sufficiency, the power, the sorrow, the ability of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to save us to the uttermost. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I thank you for our partnership in the gospel. And I pray now by your spirit uh, that you would nourish them, that they would be built up and encouraged to hold fast their confession of faith. Glorify yourself in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If someone that didn't know anything about Jesus asked you to describe him, how would you do it? If someone were to ask you, what kind of man is Jesus, how would you respond? The prophet Isaiah, in describing the very character of the Messiah, begins with this. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In a sermon, the 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon uh, preached, he said this. He said, our Lord is called the man of sorrows for peculiarity, for this was his peculiar token and special mark. We, We might well call him a man of holiness, for there was no fault in him. We could call him a man of labors, for he did his father's business earnestly, or a man of eloquence, because no man spoke like he did. We might right fittingly call him the man of love, for never was there greater love than glowed in his heart. Still conspicuous as all these and many other excellencies were, as obvious as many of these things were in his life and ministry, Charles Spurgeon says, yet had we gazed upon Christ and been asked afterwards what was the most striking peculiarity in him, we would have said his sorrows. His sorrows. He was a man of sorrows. He knew what it felt like to be saddened and distressed and disappointed and dejected and overwhelmed. On the one hand, we know that Jesus Christ was the most joyful man that ever walked planet Earth. And yet at the very same time, we have to say that he was the most sorrowful man that ever lived because he knew the true heinousness of sin. And I would say it is this note of sorrow that Spurgeon suggests sticks out in a peculiar way in his earthly ministry. You know, there, there isn't one scene recorded in the Gospels where Jesus is amused or, or laughing. Now, 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 don't mishear me. I think we're on safe ground in assuming that Jesus laughed and he was filled with joy. And, and yet, as we look at the, what's recorded, as, as these men who record his life and ministry, the thing that arrested them and, is, and was inspired and, and recorded in the scriptures for us was not the story 
of a savior sort of bopping his way through ministry, cracking jokes, but a savior who was filled with sorrow over sin. Maybe, maybe that sounds like a huge downer to you. You know, we're here on the first day. Maybe that's a downer. But here's why I want us to fix our eyes. This is why this is such good news. Here's why I want us to fix our eyes together for the next 30 minutes or so on the man of sorrows, the the sorrow of Jesus. First, because it means that in your sorrow, in your sorrow, you have a savior you can come to who, listen to me, he really knows what you're going through. He's been there. He knows He can relate. But but second, it also means you have a savior who can give you joy, even in the face of every sorrow this life can throw at you. How? Well, Well, in order to see that, you need to understand three aspects of Jesus' sorrow that we see here in this passage. Three aspects of Jesus' sorrow. I want you to see, and I think the scripture shows us, how great his sorrow was, how great the reason was for his sorrow, and then how great his love was in his sorrow. How great his sorrow was, how great the reason was for his sorrow, and then how great his love was in his sorrow. So first, how great his sorrow was. Do you know this? No one has ever endured the immensity, the, the, the greatness of sorrow that Jesus did. All the world's sorrow combined is just a drop in a bucket compared to the sorrow we see Christ facing here in this garden. And listen, I I don't say that in any way to diminish the real suffering and sorrow that you have experienced uh, in your life. But I say it to, to, to say it is impossible to overestimate the sorrow that Jesus experienced in his ministry and in his suffering and in his death. One commentator wrote, We sip at sorrow's bowl, but he drains it dry. To see this, you just need to look at and consider how Jesus is described here in these verses as he prays. As he sits his disciples down, uh, look there, verse 34, it tells us, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Here it is, a, a sorrow that we can't even begin to describe. The word translated here as very sorrowful has the sense of affliction beyond measure. That's a a sorrow without limit. Often one of the ways we we carry on in life is we compartmentalize our sorrow and our sadness. We we put it in a box, we, we store it in some closet in our heart, and we bring it out when we're feeling ready to deal with it. But this is a sorrow that can't be compartmentalized. The, the CSB, the, the uh, Christian Standard, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, helpfully translates it this way. He was swallowed up in sorrow. All Jesus can do with his sorrow is, is be utterly consumed by it. It is a sorrow unto death. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a pressure so great. It's a, it's a sorrow so profound that it, that it nearly ends his life right, right here in the garden. You know, maybe, maybe someone will say that that's hyperbole, uh, that Jesus is just in sort of an exaggerated way saying he's really, really, really sad. 
I, I don't think that's the case. Luke's gospel adds this. It tells us that as he agonized in prayer, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. This sorrow that Jesus experiences here in the garden, like an, like an anchor around his feet. He is experiencing the heaviness of a sorrow that is pulling his soul down into the depths, so far down his capillaries literally underneath his skin begin to burst and he starts to bleed out of his pores. No one has ever experienced a sorrow like this. Verse 35, Mark tells us he, he went a little further and fell he fell on the ground. We shouldn't imagine Jesus here in a composed or dignified way kneeling down in prayer. No, Mark is saying that he collapsed. He crumbled. He, he toppled over because of the immense weight of his sorrow. And Matthew's account adds that after falling to his knees, he, he, he fell down face first into the dirt. It's such a striking account because throughout his ministry, we, we haven't seen a Jesus like this before. Throughout his ministry, we see him filled with incredible poise and confidence and grace in the face of danger. Right? You think about Jesus in the boat on the stormy sea. There's no panic. There's, there's, there's no distress. Think about him in the midst of a crowd that wants to kill him. Never a hint of panic or distress. But now here in the garden, we see Jesus overwhelmed at wit's end, collapsing to the ground. There's, there's nothing poised, there's nothing dignified about it. Or consider how Jesus prays. Of course, you know, Jesus prayed often to his father. He would go out and, and, and commune with his father and in joy and confidence knowing the father's absolute delight in him. Perhaps you'll remember for, from your, your study in John, do you remember uh, when, I don't know who did the sermon, but whoever preached on uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, the way that passage begins is that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. It's, the emphasis on, is on the up it's bold, confident prayer to his heavenly father, knowing his delight, his absolute pleasure in the son. But here in the garden, the emphasis on Jesus falling down. Not bold, not confident, but stumbling, staggering, strength utterly spent, crushed under the weight of his sorrow, unable to lift his head. And listen, listen. Don't you dare think that he, he prayed some quiet, polite little prayer. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus' prayer this way. Hebrews 5, chapter 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death. It's a picture of Jesus absolutely falling apart and coming undone as he is crushed under the weight of his sorrow. Do, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? I know many of you have endured incredible grief and, and sorrow. Maybe not the, the sweating blood part, but 
you know what it's like to feel like you're just falling apart, right? To be overwhelmed by the real pain of living life in a world that's broken by sin. The real sting of loss, the real sadness of your own failure and sin, the real sorrow of of seemingly hopeless circumstances. You know what it's like to feel like you're just falling apart, to feel spiritually exhausted, strength utterly spent, desperately longing for some rest, for some joy, for some peace, for some hope. In your sorrow and desperation, all you can seem to squeak out to God in prayer is the word help. Now listen to me. Listen. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly how you feel. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. In other words, he he isn't a stranger to sorrow, but he's familiar with the weight and the pressure of crushing despair. Notice Isaiah doesn't say here, and and, and when Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, he doesn't say he was a, a sorrowful man. He says he is a man of sorrows. Look, if I were to say to you, um, or if someone were to describe uh, one, one of you as, as a man or a woman of principle, you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that you have a set of principles that are core and essential to who you are as a person, to your being. Do you see what Isaiah is saying when he says he's a man of sorrows? It's as if, it's, it's as if Isaiah is saying Jesus is made up of sorrows. It's essential to his being, to who he is. They shape him. They make him. He's made of sorrow. It's it's the basic stuff of his being. So listen, here's the point. Here's the point. There is no sorrow. Listen, there is no sorrow that you can bring to him and hear him say to you in response, I can't understand what you're going through. I don't know what that's like. No one can go to him in prayer with the weight of their grief and say to him, you just don't understand what it's like. No, it's it's just the opposite. Everyone that goes to Jesus in their sorrow finds a compassionate savior who can empathize on every level with whatever it is that they're experiencing. He, He knows, he's been there. He has gone down into the depths of sorrow that you have only dipped your toe into. And so if you will go to him in your grief and in your sadness, the word promises us that you will never find him to be cold or dismissive or indifferent. He will never say to you in your sorrow, just get over it already. Stop being dramatic. He will never say that to you. Is that good news? He will never say that to you. Instead, the Bible tells us his heart moves towards us in compassion to empathize with us in our sorrow. Brothers and sisters, see how great his sorrow was. But more than that, see how great the reason was for his sorrow. You have to see how great the reason was for his sorrow. You see, if we're we're really going to understand the greatness of Jesus' sorrow, we have to ask the question, why? What was causing his sorrow? 
Uh, the answer to that question is found in Jesus' request that the, that the hour might pass from him, that his father might remove the cup from him. Look there with me at verse 35. We read, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What do you, what do you make of that? Here's Jesus who has over and, ago, over and over again predicted this very thing. He predicts his death three times, his suffering is death three times. He's predicted this very hour, but now that it's here, he goes to his father and says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Let, let it pass. Let the hour pass. In other words, please, father, don't ask me to drink this cup. Let me fulfill my role as, as the Messiah some other way. Why? Why is he screaming on the ground, pleading with God three times to let this cup pass from him? Why now that Jesus has come to the hour when he is to drink the very cup that he came into the world to, the, to drink, does he hesitate? Why? It seems almost cowardly, doesn't it? So, so many have gone to their deaths more fearlessly than Jesus does here. You think of the, the, the many heroes in, in Jewish literature who went to their deaths bravely fighting with hearts filled with faith towards God. Or you think of the many Christian martyrs who were crucified, sawn in half, eaten by lions, burned, who go to their deaths singing. There's, a, you know, uh, are you guys familiar with Socrates? You know who Socrates is? He's an old ancient philosopher. He actually literally dies by drinking a cup. It's, it's a cup filled with poison. He's charged with corrupting the youth and he sits there in a prison cell. And um, Plato, uh, his greatest student, records that when it finally came time for uh, Socrates to drink the cup, the poison that would kill him, he, he raised his glass and drank it cheerfully and peacefully. So many seemingly go to their deaths more courageously so why then, when Jesus comes to the hour of his death, do we find him reeling and, and shaking? It's because it's not poison in the cup. It's not hemlock in the cup. It's something far worse. Look at verse 33. In verse 33, Mark's tells us, Mark tells us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That phrase, greatly distressed and troubled, it has the sense in the original language of surprise. So if you, if you have a King James in front of you, it, it, it reads, he was sorely amazed. It is to say that when Jesus looked into that cup, he was horrified. He was horrified. Now, what, what do I mean? Um, historian John McManus wrote a book uh, and it's a book that uh, he called, he titled Hell Before Their Eyes, in which he detailed the experience of allied soldiers as they came into and opened up uh, the, the gates of the Nazi death camps for the first time. He wrote in, in that book, these men discovered the very depths of human imposed cruelty and depravity. 
Most reacted with anger and revulsion and abject disgust. Almost all were haunted for the rest of their lives by what they had seen. They had, these soldiers, they had heard stories, but when they walked through the gates of, of Dachau and Birkenau and Auschwitz for the first time, they see with their own eyes the horrors of the Jewish genocide, the, the, the rotting piles of corpses stacked high, and perhaps even more shocking, the, the survivors who are at this point just walking skeletons. And they, they, they're absolutely horrified. There's a shock. There's an amazement at the evil of it. That's what we're talking about. Some of the men broke down and wept uncontrollably. uncontrollably. Others screamed out in rage. It's, it's this kind of sickening shock and revulsion that Jesus experiences when he begins to look into the cup. And the father holds out to him the cup. He's come into the world to the drink and he begins to smell it. And he begins to taste it. And as he does, he is filled with sorrow at the abject horror of what is in it. So what's in it? It's not poison. It's not hemlock. It's not merely even the, the genocidal hatred and murder of a single nation, but he sees the sin of the world and all of God's wrath for it. For the first time, he begins to taste the very wrath of God. Isaiah calls it the cup of God's wrath, the cup of staggering. It's a cup filled to the brim with the horrifying indignation of God against sin. The psalmist writes, Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. As Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes into the garden, it's that cup that his Father holds out to him. It's the aroma and taste of that wine, the wine that has been pressed in the wine press of God's wrath. It's that wine that the Father swirls in front of him now as he comes into the garden. It's here in the garden where he begins to experience the violent abandonment and forsakenness of his Father. Did, did, did you notice how Jesus addresses God in prayer? V verse 36 says, and he said, Abba, Father. That word Abba is, it's, it's an Aramaic diminutive, which is, it's, a, it's an affectionate nickname, essentially. It's meant to convey that the deep intimacy and oneness Jesus had with his Father. It, it, it reminds us, listen, Remember who it is that this cup is before in the garden here. It reminds us that for all eternity, the son was the object of his father's supreme delight and joy. For ages upon ages, there was only perfect love and joy and eternal blessedness between the father and the son. It reminds us of the father's words at Jesus' baptism. You remember at Jesus' baptism? Jesus goes under the water and comes out and the father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It reminds us of the deep intimacy and fellowship Jesus experienced as he regularly went off by himself to commune with his father in prayer. But now as he, he lies prostrate in the garden 
and begins to contemplate all the terrors of God's wrath now aimed at him, he goes to his Abba in humble faith and, and, and prays, please remove this cup. Let this hour pass. But as he prays, as he prays to the Father, what he hears is something that he has never heard before. Silence. Here in the garden, he doesn't find the refreshing love and delight of his Father. He finds the horrifying promise of abandonment. The anticipation of God's wrath. William Lane, in his commentary on these verses, writes, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. In the garden, Jesus, the beloved Son of God, began to taste the very bitterness of hell itself. It was the terrifying reality of God's wrath and the sight of hell opened before him that pierced his soul and filled him with crushing sorrow. Now, we have to ask the question, why is hell being opened before the Son of God? Why is hell being opened before the Son of God? The answer is because as great as his sorrow was that night, his love was even greater. As great as his sorrow was that night, his love was even greater. I showed you how great his sorrow was, how great the reason was for his sorrow. Can I, can I show you now how great his love was in his sorrow? How great his love was in his sorrow. If we ask ourselves why in these last moments as a free man, Jesus doesn't just take off and, and escape. We have to answer that it was because of his love. His loving submission to his father and his loving pursuit of his people. Let me show you these two things. His loving submission to his father and his loving pursuit of his people. First, see how great his loving submission was. Jesus comes to the darkest hour of his life where he is being absolutely crushed by anxiety and fear and sorrow and what lies just ahead of him and his impulse is not to cry out to God, this isn't fair, how could you do this to me? No, he, he submits himself in humble prayer to his father. Three times he goes. I'm undone. I'm distressed. I'm beside myself. Let this cup pass from me. Let this hour pass from me. But father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, not my will, but yours be done. You see, no one has ever submitted to God like Jesus did. No one has ever experienced sorrow like Jesus did and no one has ever submitted to God the Father like Jesus did. There have been plenty of men and women of great faith who obeyed God in the face of danger and even death. We could go to Hebrews 11 to, the, to that hall of faith and recount the likes of, of Moses and Rahab and, and Gideon and David and Samuel and many more unnamed saints who the author says endured mocking and torture and chains and imprisonment and stoning and so on, all in faithful obedience to God. But all of them obeyed God in faith, looking forward to the blessing and the reward. 
The pattern goes all the way back to the garden. We, Rob read it earlier. It goes all the way back to the garden where the Lord places Adam and Eve in paradise. The reward for their faithful obedience, eternal life. Never-ending, ever-increasing joy and fellowship with him. But their disobedience would bring curse and separation and death. That's the, that's the pattern that you see. Faithful obedience means blessing. Faith, faithless disobedience means curse. But here in our, in our passage, we find Jesus Christ. And guess where he is? He's in a garden. He's in a garden. The second Adam. But God's word to him is not obey and I will bless you. Here in this garden, God says something to his son that he's never said to anyone else. He says, obey and I will crush you. Submit to my will in humble faith and I will curse you and your soul will experience the hell of my judgment against sin. And Jesus replies through tears and sorrow, Father, your will be done. Here is the perfect loving obedience of Jesus Christ to his Father. Second, see his loving pursuit of his people. See how great was Jesus' loving pursuit of you. We haven't asked one of the most obvious questions this text provokes. Why is God holding out the cup of his wrath and swirling the wine of hell in front of Jesus to begin with? What has Jesus done to deserve the judgment of God? You remember Psalm 75. There is a cup in the hand of the Lord. Who does he give it to? He gives it to the wicked. He gives it to the sinner, to the evil one. So why is he here giving it to Jesus? The, I know you've heard, listen, I know, I know you've heard this before. Hear it again. Why is he giving the cup to Jesus? Because in love, Jesus stands in the place of his people to drink the cup of God's wrath that they deserve to drink. In love, he stands in the place of his people to drink the cup of God's wrath that they deserve to drink, that you deserve to drink. His love for you runs so deep that he is determined to drink from the cup of God's curse in your place so that you will never have to taste one drop of it. Amen. The author of Hebrews chapter two, we read this earlier. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, he, he, he drank the cup and tasted death for you. Sometimes that gets lost a little bit in, in, in translation. Don't miss, don't miss this. We, we, we hear the word taste sometimes and we think of like a little bit. I just want to taste. I just want, I just want a little bit. I just want to taste it. But here the author of Hebrews is saying the exact opposite. To, to, to taste is literally to experience the flavor of something. That's what tasting is. And what we see here is that Jesus doesn't just sample death. 
He, he doesn't just take a sip of death. He doesn't nibble at death. He tasted death, all of it. All of it. All the bitterness, all the sorrow, all the fear, all the abandonment, all the wrath, all the horror, every little favor, flavor profile of death, he tasted it for you. He drank it all down to the bottom, experiencing every pang of sorrow that comes as a, as a result of being abandoned by God and becoming the object of his wrath. And, and why? Why? Because he was unwilling, in love, he was unwilling that his people should ever have to taste one drop of it. Because, brothers and sisters, because he loves you. It's a love that, that can't be stifled or quenched even by the very sorrows of hell. We sang this earlier. No, how do you know that? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. How do you know that? Because he drunk it down to the bottom. Every bit of it, every drop of it, every, every agony of hell, he tasted it for you. Why? Because you are so lovable. No, no, no. You want to know what you were doing while, while Jesus was there writhing in the garden? contemplating, drinking the wrath of God. Look at the disciples. Look at the disciples. Jesus brings his three closest disciples into the garden with him and says, remain here and watch. He's telling them to be vigilant. The hour of their greatest temptation is coming and the only way they're going to have the fortitude to stand up under it is by uh, calling out to God in prayer and, and asking for the strength that only he can provide and as he goes to the Lord three times in prayer, Jesus goes distressed and troubled with loud cries and tears. How does he find the disciples? Sleeping. Sleeping. Not once, not twice, but three times. Asleep. Why are they so tired? Get this. You know why Luke records they're so tired? You know what, you know what Luke says? He says they were sleeping for sorrow. They're overwhelmed by the events of the night. They've, they've, they've heard, they feel the anticipation of the religious leaders closing in on Jesus. At the Passover supper, Jesus has announced that one of the 12 is going to betray him. And then he takes it one step further and he says, by the way, you're all going to abandon me. And they're just overwhelmed. And now, they're, now their master, their Lord, their teacher is writhing in the garden in front of them. And they're overcome with sorrow and they just go to sleep. You ever, you ever done that? You've been so sad. You're like, I just need to go to bed. That's what they do. His, his distress and agony aren't enough to keep them awake. They're, they're so weak. Brothers and sisters, we are so weak. That's what Jesus says, right? That the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even, even our good intentions amount to nothing because of our weakness. It's as if Mark is forcing the reader to ask the question, why would Jesus go through all of this? He's, he, the, the Lord, God the Father, is holding out the cup of his wrath to him and saying, are you ready to drink this thing? And there he is contemplating the wrath of God. And it's as if Mark is saying, as, as, as Jesus 
begin to think about all, all the things, all of what he's going to have to endure for the sake of the disciples. You're like, you're going to endure for these guys? They're, they're, they're just there sleeping. They can't even stay awake with you for an hour to pray while you agonize on the ground in the dirt. Are these really the kinds of people, Jesus, that you're going to endure the very sufferings of hell for? You know what Jesus' answer is? Yes. 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 Why? It's just because he loves them. Because he, lo- because he loves his people. Because he loves his people. Hear it this morning again. I know, I know you know it in your head, but hear it again. He loves his people. He loves you. Romans 5, 6, 4, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were sleeping, indifferent to our sin, indifferent to our weakness, Christ died for us. We were asleep in our weakness and sin, indifferent to the sufferings of Jesus, but he went anyway in your place up the hill of Calvary where he was crucified under the judgment of God to take the cup of God's wrath that belonged to you and drink it down to the bottom. In the garden, Jesus prayed to the Lord with loud cries and tears, asking that the cup might be removed from him on the cross. He, you know on the cross, he cries out. We see him in the garden crying out with loud cries. Do you know we find him on the cross doing the same thing? Two times he screams out. He cries out. You know what two things he cries out on the cross? the first thing he cries out is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening on the cross is experiencing the complete abandonment and forsakenness of his father as God pours out his wrath. But the second thing he cries out, you know what the second thing he cries out is? Who said it? It's finished. It is finished. God's wrath extinguished. The cup drained down to the bottom. The cup empty. And listen, do you know how you can be certain the cup is empty? Because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty. He rose again as the guarantee. And you can be certain the cup has no wrath in it because he rose victorious over sin and death. So that now all who put their trust in him alone, alone, who take the cup of God's wrath in their hands. That's what you have this morning. In your hands, the cup of God's wrath. If you would put it in his hands, give it to Jesus and find him to be the perfect, compassionate Savior who willingly drinks the cup that rightfully belongs to us. He says, all that come to me in faith, I will drink it. I will take it. You've never known a love like this. That the father holds out a horrifying cup of judgment and says to his son, if you don't drink it, they will have to. And Jesus says, give it all to me. Give it all to me. Let it all fall on me. Charge all their debt to my account. Pour out all your wrath that belongs to them on me. I will take it all in their place because I love them. But brothers and sisters, you know that when, when Jesus took the cup of God's wrath out of your hands, do you know he didn't leave you empty-handed, did he? He put another cup in your hand. 
You know what cup he put in your hand? Paul calls it the cup of blessing. He puts the cup of blessing in your hand. It's the cup of never-ending blessing. It's a cup that is filled with joy and peace and righteousness and love and welcome and acceptance and glory. In fact, it's a cup that is filled with the Lord himself so that you might know never-ending, ever-increasing joy and fellowship with him. That's what you have in your hand. By his grace. Brothers and sisters, when, when you look down and see in your hands that cup, the cup of God's blessing instead of the cup of God's wrath, it gives you a joy that, not, that cannot be threatened by any sorrow this world can throw at you. It's not to say the sorrows won't be real, but when you look down and you see that cup of blessing, when it should be a cup of wrath, it gives you a joy, a joy that, that, that can withstand any sorrow in this life. It tells you that, that Jesus went to his father in prayer and heard silence so that when you go to him in prayer, you will only hear his voice of kindness and grace to you. It reminds you that, that he took all the wrath of God into his soul so that you would only ever know his love. It says that he endured an eternal sorrow, so that even while you experience sorrow in this life, you can know and have eternal joy. He, he took the cup of God's curse so that you could forever have the cup of his blessing. Brothers and sisters, his sorrow, his sorrow is so great. And brothers and sisters, our sin is so great. The cause for his sorrow was the weight the breadth, the depth of our sin. It was so great. But his love is even greater. Amen. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Trust him for his grace. Know that he loves you. Let's pray together. Lord, what can we say? We thank you that you sent your son into the world to drink from the cup of your wrath so that we might know only your blessing and love. Help us to abide in the love of our Savior. Help us to remain in the love of our Savior. Even in our sorrow, even in our sadness, even as we feel distressed and overcome and overwhelmed, Help us to go to our Savior who can empathize with us, who, who moves towards us in compassion and who has conquered the greatest reason for our sorrow, our sin, and the death we deserve to die and who now gives us an eternal, everlasting, unshakable hope. Lord, bless these brothers and sisters. Help them to abide in your love. I pray for their joy in you and for the sake of your glory in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.